morning. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 through 20. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you want, I will set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Jesus came up, touched them, and said, Get up. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So the disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replied. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. When they reached the crowd, a man approached and knelt down before him. Lord, he said, have mercy on my son, because he has seizures and suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. Jesus replied, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Then Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and from that moment, the boy was healed. Then the disciples approached Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we drive it out? Because of your little faith, he told them. For truly, I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. The word of the Lord. Let me pray before we move in uh, to the message. Lord, we say again, we are joyful. We do. Uh, many of us want to shout for joy because this feels like a victory, uh, that we can move forward, that we can worship in this way. And we pray now, and I pray as we listen to your word together, even as we read this passage where the message is clear, listen to him, that you would help us with whatever's going on in our minds and hearts, that distractions would fade, that our focus could be on listening to your voice, speaking in your word, and that you would fill me with the words that illumine, direct, and point uh, to the glorious truth in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Since Easter, we've been in a series on the Gospel of Matthew. And for the past few weeks, uh, I've been away. I've been on vacation. It's been good to unplug for a little bit which means you've had the privilege of hearing some other folks teach you through passages 
in the Gospel of Matthew. In the past few Sundays, we've been looking at Matthew 18. You notice that we read from 17. So we're going backwards. We're going to resume where I left off and then David Ta left off a few weeks ago. We're not going to skip over this chapter, chapter 17, this story which is known as the Transfiguration. The title of our sermon series has been Jesus Unfiltered. A filter is something that lets some things through, what you want through. It gets through a filter, but it blocks out the things that you don't want uh, to get through, right? As we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew, we've been asking ourselves this question. How might I be doing this with Jesus? How do I filter Him? Do I have some maybe political or cultural or personal filters that I put up between me and Jesus? How do I let the parts of Jesus in that I want that I say, yeah, for sure on that one? And are there places where I'm saying, no, I don't know about that. These are the parts of Jesus I'm not so comfortable with. The reason why this is so important is because the power of Christianity, the heart of Christianity is found when the full and complete Jesus has full and complete access to us. So we need to know the full and complete Jesus, even the parts that we struggle with. In this section, the very center of the gospel, Matthew 16, Jesus was dealing with a major filter. This is probably the major filter His disciples had that He was trying to get through, that He was trying to knock down. In chapter 16, if we remember some of the context here, Jesus for the first time had clearly and directly told them, this is what's going to happen with me. This is where all this is headed. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die to bring redemption to this world. There will be suffering, then glory. There will be cross, then resurrection. And for them... This blew their categories, a crucified Messiah they thought was no use. Why? How could that be? A king that comes to suffer. How can that king bring redemption? A Messiah that is weak. What kind of Messiah is that? So Peter said, no, this will never happen. Filters up. And then Jesus rebuked him. He called him Satan. We talked about that. And Jesus said to him, Peter, not only will this happen to me, This will also happen to all those who follow me. Anyone who wants to follow after me and be saved, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, follow me, and lose their life. Chapter 16, verses 24 and 25. Suffering, a cross, losing. This is how all things will be restored. This is how salvation and redemption will come to the world, how the kingdom will come, and how a person will find their life. So this is what the disciples were wrestling with. Self-denial is better than self-fulfillment, losing instead of gaining. And they were struggling with this. How could this be? What does Jesus do next? In Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke... It's all the same. The flow of the narrative is the same. He takes them up to the mountain. That's what we just read. And he starts glowing with two guys from heaven. And we go, what is that all about? How does that help address the situation? 
what exactly is going on. It's amazing. But how is it connected to this filter that they had about a crucified Messiah? For me personally, I've always kind of scratched my head a bit about this text. I've said it's incredible, it's amazing, it's glorious, but I'm wondering what the purpose of all of it is. And I think, I hope to show you this morning there is great purpose here in this text. Let me start off with an illustration. If someone says, I'm selling you a fitness plan, a diet plan, it's going to require giving up the food you love, sorry. It's going to require some like intense exercise that you don't love, sorry. It's going to require a lot of discipline and sacrifice. For you to agree to that plan, you better have some assurance, right, that it will work. Or if someone says, I, I, I've got a dream vacation for you, but it's going to cost you thousands of dollars, you better first see the pictures at least of that place and of that vacation. Or final example, if somebody says, you need to take this course, you need to take this course of study in order to get into the college that you want to get into, take this course. Or to advance in your career the way you need to, you need to take this extra course. It's going to cause you a lot of lost sleep, but it's going to be worth it. You say, I need to know before I lose that sleep and spend all this time, I need assurance that what you're saying is true. For the disciples, for us, as we see the story of Jesus, what they're about to see and experience as Jesus moves towards suffering and death, this will not seem like he's moving towards glory and victory. This will not seem like the victory of the kingdom and the coming of God's reign of love and peace and redemption. It will seem like defeat. It will look ineffective and unimpressive. But Jesus says, it will lead to glory. And the question is, how, how do we know? How can we know? It looks like defeat. It looks like weakness. It looks like failure. How can we know it will end in glory? And that's what this passage is all about. We weren't able to get the outline in the bulletin. If you're taking notes, if you like visuals and an outline, here it is. In this text, we see the need for assurance. We see the source of assurance. We see how we grow in assurance. Why do we need assurance? Where can we find it? How can we grow in it? First, the need for assurance. So this story of the transfiguration is very rich. There's all kinds of questions that might pop into your mind as you're reading and thinking about this. There's all kinds of connections here to the Old Testament, to the whole Bible. There's so many important theological reflections that come from this text. But thankfully we have help because one of the people who was there tells us of all the things we could think about this, of all the purposes it might have, one of the people who was there on the mountain says, here's the point of it all. And that's Peter. He wrote about this experience in his second letter, 2 Peter 1 verses 16 and 17. Here's what he says. He says, for we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven. 
while we were with him on the holy mountain. We also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter says in this, in this letter, I am going to die. God has revealed to me that my time is short. And what did Peter remember as he's thinking about, was it worth it? Is it worth it? The suffering that he's gone through and is about to face. He's thinking about this experience on the mountain, the transfiguration. And he says this experience was all about assurance for him and then through him to us. He says the gospel story, it's not a contrived, made-up myth. We didn't make this up. Sometimes we wonder, right? Is it real? Is it true? Did people make this up? He says, no. I know you're wondering. It's real. I am an eyewitness to the truth that Jesus truly is who he said he is. And the prophetic word, I believe, a reference to the two characters here who appeared with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, representing the prophets, really standing for all of Scripture, it's confirmed. The Scriptures are true, and they are fulfilled in Jesus. That's very powerful how Peter describes this. He says this assurance that we can get from the transfiguration, it's like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises. That is a powerful picture, a lamp in a dark place. This uh, 4th of July, we didn't go out and, and see fireworks like up close because we live uh, in Peters Canyon. We live near Peters Canyon. There's a hill in the back of our neighborhood. We can get up, and it's all dark outside, and we can see fireworks happening all around us. So that's how we decided to see fireworks this year. On, on the way up, it was still light when we went up to the hill to see all, all the fireworks. But by the time we came down, it was pretty dark. And, you know, walking on the path, it's pretty steep, it's rocky. We decided we needed to bring with us headlamps so that for us and for our kids, we could get down safely. We didn't need headlamps when everything was light all around us. But when everything got dark, we said, bring out the headlamp so that we can be assured of our footing so we know where we are going. That's the picture that Peter has here for us. He's saying, I know it's not easy to believe. He's saying, sometimes you're going to lose your confidence. You're going to need assurance. Why? Well, he's, he gives us the picture here. He says, until the day dawns, until Jesus returns, until all things are bright in his glorious victory and in the restoration of all things, until then, we still live in a dark place the world, our own lives still, we still experience the darkness of sin, of brokenness, of pain. And until that day comes, we can expect to struggle with doubts and questions. Sometimes we're going to feel like we are in a dark place because of suffering, disappointment. And in those times when everything seems dark, we're going to need assurance. We're going to need a lamp. We're going to need a headlamp to assure us of where we're going, 
This passage, the transfiguration, Peter says that's the lamp. There's two important observations with some application I want to make about this. First, this means it's okay to need assurance, and it's important that we all hear this. It's, it's okay to admit that we need assurance. See, the fact that Jesus followed up really his hardest conversation he had with his disciples, his sharpest rebuke that he ever gave anyone when he rebuked Peter, his high demands, he says, I ask for it all. The fact that he follows up all of that with such powerful assurance means he knows we need it. He knows we need, we need assurance. It's okay to need it, to admit it. Here, as the disciples are just starting to understand who he is, and they're struggling with what it all means, how it won't be glory to glory, but it will be suffering then glory, he knows they need assurance, and he knows that we need assurance. It's hard. Sometimes we get into a dark place. The lamp can grow dim for all of us. One of my favorite chapters in our statement of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, is chapter 18. It's all about the assurance of faith. And it says there that a Christian, a genuine, true Christian, can lose their assurance of faith for all kinds of reasons. Some because of choices we make, sometimes not. A true Christian can even get to the point, this is in the words of the confession, where it feels like we are suffering to walk in darkness and have no light. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you feel like you're going through that kind of dark experience now. And it's important to know that the Christian life is not the experience of glory to glory. That the Christian life, as Jesus has laid out here, sometimes walks through places where you feel dark and you can barely see the lamp. It's okay to need assurance, to admit that you need it. Secondly, Jesus wants to, and he does, give his followers assurance. He gives us a lamp to hold to the darkness. Throughout the Bible, mountains are places where God brings special, clear, and direct revelation. That's what happens on the mountains. Mount Moriah with Abraham. Mount Zion was where David was called to build the temple. The presence of God was to dwell there with his people. Moses on Mount Sinai received the law of God and spent time in his presence. Elijah, probably on this same mountain, met with God and heard his still, small voice. The mountains in the Bible, the mountain is the place of the most powerful and clear and direct revelation of God. And this mountain revelation, this is what struck me this week, is probably the most powerful and clear revelation of God in the whole Bible. I never really appreciated it until this week. When we, when we go up to a mountain, some of you like to hike, some of you like to hike mountains. Like Mountains are the places where people go to hike. They're the most po uh, popular places. On our vacation, we were in Seattle. We went to Olympic National Park. It was beautiful. And the most recommended hike, the hike that we did, we've come back and talked to people. The hike that everybody wants to talk about is Hurricane Hill, where you go up high to the top of this mountain, and you get a viewpoint of all the mountains around 
of the oceans, of the islands. You can see everything. Isn't that why we go up to the mountains? It's for the viewpoint. It's for the vantage point. You don't go to the mountain and you're not looking down and like, oh, look at this terrain. It's so cool. Or even around you at the trees. You're looking out and beyond and going, I can see everything from here. It's amazing. What a vantage point. Symbolically, that's how the mountains fun- function in Scripture and how this mount functions. This mountain gives us a viewpoint and a vantage point for the rest of life. And Peter and Jesus are saying, use this, what's here, this truth, this text, as a lamp. What happens on this mountain? Jesus is transfigured. He's metamorphosized. He's transformed. His face shines like the sun. His clothes are as white as light. What's happening there? It's, it's his pre-incarnate glory as the divine sun breaking out of his humanity. And it's his coming resurrection glory, probably also at the same time being revealed ahead of time. He is the Son of God. He shows that he has inherent glory and power in himself. And then Moses and Elijah appear in verse 3, it says. These are the two most revered prophets of the Old Testament. Moses in Deuteronomy said, God's going to send another prophet greater than me. This is the one that you should listen to. Elijah was the prophet who was expected to come before the Messiah as a forerunner to prepare his way. As the story of Elijah goes, he was taken up before he even died into heaven. And so because of the book of Malachi and other writings of the time, the Jewish people expected before God comes and resolves all the darkness in this painful world, Elijah will come first. And there he is on the mountain. They represent the law and the prophets, the whole Bible. And then this cloud comes, this glorious cloud, which represents the presence of God. And out of the cloud, the voice of God speaks. So here's here's what's happening. This is all concentrated in one place. The glory of the divine sun shines forth. The entire Bible is represented by the two greatest prophets are there on the mountain. And the very presence of God and the voice of God are all there. This is as concentrated as it ever gets in the entire Bible. All happening together, all at the same time. I know I wasn't there. I know you weren't there, but Peter says, I was there. It happened. And through this, we see just how far God will go to assure us, to assure us, to give us a lamp, Jesus is who he said he is. And even when it seems at its darkest, you can trust my entire word, my presence, my voice, his glory and his beauty himself. This is something you can rely on no matter how dark it gets. So this passage and Peter's reminder later in his letter tell us it's normal. We should expect times when it feels dark, that we'll need assurance. It will ebb and flow in our lives. Sometimes we'll get to the place where we doubt and we'll go, do I believe? Can I believe? Am I really a Christian? It can feel dark. That is normal. And God understands this need. And in many different ways, he gives us resources to recover 
and grow in assurance. He did it for Peter, James, and John, even before they ever faced their hardest trials and suffering, and he does it for us. So there are many resources God gives us to assure us when we doubt, when things get dark, but this passage shows us the source, the focal point, the basis of all true and solid assurance that Jesus is who he said he is and following him is worth it. All these different supernatural, once-in-a-lifetime elements on the mountain, the revealing of Jesus' glory, Moses and Elijah, the presence and the voice of God, they all have one thing in common. Like, what's it all about? What's going on? Well, they're all in agreement, do you see? They all point to the one source of true and solid assurance, which is Jesus alone. That's the climactic ending point. That's where all this drives in verse 8. It says, when the disciples looked up, when they heard the voice, they were driven down, they looked up, and it says they saw no one but Jesus alone. Literally, the translation could be, they did not see anyone but Jesus only. The only is at the end for emphasis. What this is telling us is where we can find the source, the fount, and the basis of our assurance comes when we are able to focus on Jesus alone. Let's go through these experiences and what happened on this mountain once again. There's no person ever in the history of the Bible who transfigured from within. It's always from without, outside in. This is an inside-out glory transformation that happened. Moses' face reflected God's glory, it says in Exodus. He met with God, and he was changed, and he reflected God's glory. This is not that. This is different. Jesus, his face was changed. His clothes lit up to reflect his innate and natural glory. His glory was being uncovered. Jesus alone has this glory in himself, Jesus alone. Only two times in the Gospels does the Father speak audibly. First, at Jesus' baptism, and second here at his transfiguration. Part one and part two of Jesus' ministry, the beginning, and then when he moves to the cross at the end. Both times the Father says the same thing. This one, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Father's voice there is taking the words from Psalm 2, verse 7, which says, this is my Son, this is my Son, the King. Isaiah 42, 1, which says, this is my servant, in this one I delight, putting them together and saying, this is my King, the only Son that I have, and my servant who will suffer. He is the divine king and the servant, Jesus alone. And thirdly, when Peter says, hey, let's make three tents for you, Jesus, and for one for you, one for Moses and Elijah, what's happening there is Peter is, in essence, treating them as equals, saying, let's all hang out, the three of you and the three of us, and let's make tents and make this last. The point that is being made here is, they did not appear to hang out and have a camping party in tents. They came to bear witness to Jesus. And after the voice happens, the disciples fall face down. And when they looked up, Jesus alone was left. They were gone. 
Here's the point why I walk through all those things. Jesus alone has his glory. Jesus alone receives the voice of the Father. He alone is the Son and the servant. Jesus alone was left. What is the point? Here it is, the most powerful source of of assurance, the supplier and the fount and the basis of the assurance we need when things get dark comes from Jesus alone. This is where we are to look. The best way I know to drive this point home for us is to compare Jesus alone assurance with the other ways that we look to find assurance when things get difficult and when we doubt. One of the ways we try to do this, one of the ways that I do this, is we try to work or think our way to assurance when we're struggling, when we're questioning. I need to do something. I need to think really hard my way out of this. This is represented by what Peter did here. Peter, as we've seen through our study, he was a doer and he was a talker. Some of you are doers and talkers. Here in the holy of holy moments, this concentrated revelation of God, Peter's like, I can't help it. I've got to do something, and I've got to say something. Let's build tents. Mark says he was so afraid that just came out of his mouth. He didn't even know what he was saying. And Luke tells us, yeah, he really had no idea what he was saying. He just blurted it out. And it's kind of comical because it says here, while Peter was still speaking, God had to interrupt him. God had to just speak with Peter in mid-sentence saying, stop, (laughs) Peter, for once you do need to shut up. It says, listen to him. Stop and listen. Here's the point, friends. Assurance does not come from our activity, from building tents. We don't work our way into it or think our way into it with the constant chatter of our lives. We need to stop and listen and look to Jesus. Sometimes we try to get assurance without humility. When we struggle with doubts and we need assurance, if you're there right now and you're like, it's dark, I'm I'm disappointed with God, I'm struggling with Him, the last thing I need is to be humble. In those times when we're struggling like that, we think we need God. Sometimes we demand that God show up, encourage us, lift me up, give me confidence. Not cause me to fall down on my face, but this is what the experience of true assurance looks like. This is the pattern for every person who encountered God. As the disciples did, they were humbled, they were terrified, they fell on their faces. And then in that place and in that posture, Jesus, it says, he touched them. And he raised them up. There's the the humbling. There's the face-down humility. There's the gracious reach and the gentle touch of God. And then there's the singular focus, Jesus alone. To get there, we have to be humbled, even when we think we don't need it. We try to work or think our way to assurance. We try to get assurance without humility. Sometimes we try to get assurance that God will just meet our expectations. There's a big difference between assurance of faith in Jesus and assurance that Jesus will meet our expectations of him. This is the lesson the disciples learn going down the mountain, verses 9 through 13. They say, wait a minute. They're processing it. We just saw Elijah. He disappeared. I thought Elijah was coming first. Jesus, what happened? 
What about Elijah? Why did he leave? He's supposed to prepare the way. And Jesus says, you're right. Elijah is to come first. And in fact, he did come. But no one recognized him because he didn't come in the way that anybody expected. And he says in verse 12, in the same way, it's going to be for me. I am going to suffer too. Sometimes when we're struggling, we say, God, this is not how I expected it to be. I was processing this with somebody this week. We expect certain feelings to be there, certain feelings to come, to have certain experiences, to have certain circumstances work out the way we think they should work out, to have some things never happen to us, to have our prayers answered, to have our stories and the stories of those we love resolved a certain way. We try to get assurance from God. God, will you meet those expectations? And so we have to ask ourselves a hard question. Has God let me down? Or in those moments, have my expectations of God let me down? There is a, there's something that Martin Luther, the great reformer, that he taught when it comes to our expectations. He called it the theology of glory versus a theology of the cross. That's really what this passage is all about. Do we have expectations of glory that our lives will move from glory to glory, from success to success, from strength to strength? Luther said, this is what this experience and the ministry of Jesus and the gospel is all about. This is not a theology of glory, but a theology of the cross. That in and through what looks weak, that in and through what looks like defeat, God is working. God is working to redeem the world and free us from sin, selfishness, and indeed to bring the light of his new creation. It's not through glory to glory, but through the theology of the cross. But some of us have in our expectations of God a theology of glory. Jesus says, you expected Elijah, you expect me to walk from glory to glory. But in the same way as Elijah, it will be from suffering to glory. Third point, the growth of assurance. Looked at the need for assurance, the source of our assurance is Jesus alone, not our, our working or thinking not trying to get assurance without humility, not our own expectations, and finally, the growth. I don't have time to unpack this fully, but the story of the transfiguration on the mountain, the conversation about expectations coming down the mountain is connected to the final scene. If you look at the text again, off the mountain, Jesus comes down, and what happens? It's kind of chaos. There's a crowd there. Jesus couldn't, or the disciples couldn't heal this boy who came with his father, who was oppressed by some demon, they couldn't heal him. They couldn't free him from spiritual oppression. Jesus comes, he heals the boy, and the disciples come to him later and process it and say, what happened? Why couldn't we do this? And Jesus says, it's because of the lack of your faith. If you just had a mustard seed size of faith, you could move mountains. This part of the story teaches us about the growth of assurance. When 
Does assurance grow, and how does it grow? When? Assurance grows in times of failure, in times when we are emptied. When we are successful and when we are doing good and we're moving from glory to glory and strength to strength, most often in those times our assurance is in ourselves, in our circumstances. But here the disciples were empty, they had failed, and Jesus said, now I can teach you about assurance. When Jesus went up to the mountain with the three, the other nine were confronted by this challenge to do something Jesus had called them to do. Somehow in this experience, they lost sight. They weren't able to carry it out. They were looking to their resources and not to Jesus. And so they were defeated and they were humbled. And what happened? Well, Jesus says, here's what happened. You're feeling defeated, you're feeling empty, you're feeling humbled, but there is a way to live with such boldness and confidence and assurance that you could move mountains, that you can live like nothing is impossible. And so they are thinking, and we are thinking, how do we get that kind of assurance? He says, through faith. Why could we do this? What happened? He says, you lack faith. Because you didn't have faith. Jesus is not talking about have blind faith, just believe. No. He's talking about faith that has a trustworthy, a reliable, and a certain object to rest on. Faith always rests on something. This is not a blind faith. He says you have to have a reliable object. You trusted in yourselves. You had the wrong object. It's not blind faith. He's not talking about a big faith. Believe harder, believe more. That is not what he says. He says, all you need here is a mustard seed to live with boldness and assurance like nothing will be impossible. Jesus is saying, this is how we grow in assurance. When our faith is directed away from all other things and placed in Jesus alone, even the smallest amount of that undiluted faith, not because of the faith, Not because of the amount of faith, but because of the object of faith. Who it is placed in, that faith is a faith full of assurance. And this faith is tested. This faith grows the most in times when we are emptied and humbled and even when all things seem dark. That is why Jesus says, maybe the most confusing thing in here, back in verse 9. Where he says to Peter and James and John, don't tell anybody about this. Until when? After the resurrection. Jesus is saying, the mountain of transfiguration can only be understood in its fullness. It can only have its power after I go to the hill of suffering. On the the mountain, Jesus shone like the sun. In his brightness, on the hill, all was enveloped. All was covered in darkness. On the mountain, Jesus' clothes, it says they shone like white. On the hill, all of his clothes were stripped, and he was naked. On the mountain glory, on the hill, shame 
On the mountain, Jesus stood between Moses and Elijah in this place of great honor amongst the heroes of the faith. On the hill, Jesus was crucified between two criminals, outcasts. On the mountain, the Father's voice speaks loud and clear, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. On the hill, the voice was silent. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Why did the one who was on the mountain, who clearly could have avoided the hill, why did he go to the hill? Friends, this is the gospel. Because it was the only way that we might be delivered from our darkness into the new day of the new creation. He went there for us. This means Jesus' suffering was not just a prelude to his glory. His suffering is a part of his glory. In dark places, Jesus says, here is the lamp I give you to hold out, to keep going. Just as my suffering is not just a prelude, but it is a part of my glory, so also it will be for you, all who follow and trust in me. Paul, here's how he said it in Romans 8. He said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, when it gets dark, are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. And some translations say, in us. Romans 8.18. C.S. Lewis said, I'm going to end here, so stay with me for this last point. This is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. We say, what could make up for this? What could make up for the darkness that I experienced that I have to walk through? What could make up for this suffering? When we're in places, when we're doubting, when we're not sure, we say, is it going to be worth it? Paul says, the glory that will be revealed will work backwards and will illumine and glorify even our deepest suffering. How can it be? For my suffering and my doubts, you say, how can it be? How can I trust and rest and be assured in this? And the answer is here. The one who was on the mountain went to the hill. The one that died on the hill was raised to glory. You can trust him. You need nothing else but to look to him. When it's dark, look to the lamp. Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this text. We thank you that you have not left us without light, without assurance, when we doubt, when we struggle, that you have not left us to figure out what to look at, where to go, and what to do, but you have given us this text. You have given us the one to whom this text points to, Jesus, the Lord of glory, who suffered for us. 
And I pray for us wherever we're struggling that you would turn our hearts to look to him. I pray that this would become a deep resource that when we need it, when it seems like all other lights have gone out, that we would be able to remember the lamp of the identity and the glory of Jesus, our Savior. Help us now as we close this worship service to direct our hearts, our minds, our souls on him alone as we sing. We pray it in his name. Amen.